Hey y'all, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor at Emmanuel in Hookson. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. Our goal is to be a blessing to everyone who listens as you continue on your journey of faith. It's also our hope that you'll be encouraged to find a church to belong to so you can plug into that congregation and bless others with the gifts and experiences that God has entrusted you with. If you're being encouraged or challenged by this teaching, would you consider giving us a five-star review? That review and rating moves us up the list so others might find us more easily so they too can benefit from this podcast. Well, I hope this podcast is a blessing to you and encourages you to get out there and be the blessing. God bless. Strategies. Let's take a look at this. Um, lest Satan should take advantage of us, 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices, design strategies, or schemes. And leading up to this verse, Paul is talking about forgiveness. He's talking about how uh, in the first letter that Paul wrote to this church, God used Paul to write a couple of letters to this church at Corinth. In the first letter, he was like, geez, guys, what are you thinking celebrating sin? Now, I'm paraphrasing, but he's saying, what are you thinking celebrating sin? You have someone that's sinning in your midst. It's open sin. It's sin that even the Gentiles or those that are not Christians, right, they look at and go, what is going on, right? What's going on with that church? What are they thinking? It was a guy sleeping with his stepmother. And when I say sleeping, I mean having sex with, right? And so Paul writes him a letter. It's reached Paul halfway around the, the globe, well, and what, was, what was their globe back then. And so finally he writes him a letter, and he's like, dude, you need to save this guy. Put him out of the church. Exercise church discipline, because this church has lost its way. So they did that. And then in the second letter, it's come back to Paul that this guy had repented. He'd gotten his heart right with God but the fellowship of believers weren't welcoming him back. They're like, yeah, you got us in trouble with Paul and God, and you could just stay outside of these four walls. We don't want you back. We're not the church of broken people anymore. You just stay away. And so Paul's saying, hey guys, man, enough is enough. Whom you forgive, I forgive. And we don't want to leave this brother unforgiven because then the devil comes in and gets advantage over us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And some of you are living lives where people have repented or they're trying to, and you have not yet forgiven them because you're not ready. Let it sit with you what Paul said. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And one of his devices, brethren, is unforgiveness. We're not, not, we're not going to talk about that today. That's just a little preview, if you will. Strategy, action, plan, policy designed to achieve a major overall aim. What is the aim of Satan? Does anybody remember? What is his goal? What does he want? The glory of God. Some of y'all have been listening, right? He wants God's glory. He says, I will ascend to the mountain of the Most High God. I will be like God. And he wanted to take God's glory for himself. The only problem with that, well, one of many, is that he's not God. And the glory of God is the manifestation of God's character and God's power, God's majesty. And the Bible says Jesus was the express image of the glory of God. There's only one, and that's Jesus. And so Satan wants it to be worshipped, and he wants to be worshipped, as Christ. As a matter of fact, in the end times, he's going to come as an antichrist. You've heard that expression. He is going to come and demand worship of those that are on the earth. He wants worship. He wants obeisance. He wants to control you, and he wants to control me. And one way you can tell the difference between the Holy Spirit and an evil spirit is one is a rapist and the other is not. You say, that's powerful language. It absolutely is. The Holy Spirit will cajole you. He will make you grieve. He will, he, will, he will press in. He will lead. He will guide. He will direct. But He always does it with love and mercy and grace. 
even when the Spirit disciplines us. It's always from a place of love. It's always from a place of grace to believers. An evil spirit is abusive, is heavy, seeks to control and condemn. Think about it. This is an evil spirit. It does not have your well-being in mind. Evil spirits do not have the well-being of your loved ones in mind. Evil spirits are manipulative and deceptive. They are demented and they are perverted. So when we're dealing with these questions, we ask, is this coming from a place of grace or is it coming from a place of condemnation? Because believers in Christ, the Bible says, we are no longer condemned. Now, the Holy Spirit can provide guilt to our conscience. He can provide conviction to our conscience. But He will not condemn you if you are in Christ. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? The Holy Spirit will not condemn you. So those of you that are kind of like me, you, you go and you take a shower and you do your best thinking in the shower, right? Well, some of you do your worst thinking because you're thinking thoughts that are constantly condemning. I'm no good. What's wrong with me? Constantly condemning. Constantly condemning. Constantly condemning. Listen, be aware of the voices that are speaking to you. Sometimes it's just your own rotten negativity. Other times, there are spiritual forces involved. And you think it's your voice. But it is not. Because I am convinced that Satan and his demons are expert ventriloquists. Got quiet in here. You should be. You should be serious about Satan. You should understand that without the power of God, you got no chance against him. Without Jesus as your armor, you have no chance against him. He is an angelic being. He's created being. And he has no chance against God. But he is an angel. A fallen angel with immense power and unbelievable resources. So we want to make sure that we understand Satan, when he's coming at us, he's coming to destroy that which brings glory to God. And that includes you, and it includes me, and it includes Emmanuel Baptist Church, and it includes your family. What are his devices? We've looked at a few devices, and this morning we're going to take a step into 1 Corinthians. Now I plead with you, brethren... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the express image of the glory of God, right? That you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. What a device of Satan. That you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you by Listen, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Everybody, everybody in Chloe's row just looked to the center. <laughs> that was fantastic. <coughs> that was awesome. <laughs> Chloe, you tattletale. <laughs> Chloe's household. So it's me. I'm part of Chloe's household. And I'm telling me there's contentions among you. He goes on, now I say this, that each of you, here's the contention, each of you says, I'm of Paul. I got saved through the preaching of Paul. I'm a direct disciple of Paul. Oh yeah, well, I'm of Apollos. And we're like, who the heck is Apollos? Apollos was an incredibly eloquent orator. He was one of the most powerful preachers in the New Testament, right? He didn't write a Bible book, but he preached a lot of Bible. And he was very powerful and a wonderful ministry to the churches. And he would go as an evangelist, church to church. And he would preach in those churches. And he would strengthen the saints. And he would convict sinners. And they would come to Jesus, right? So Apollos was a big deal, right? And then some were like, well, you think you're of Paul. And you think you're of Apollos, man. I'm of Cephas. And we're like, Cephas? That sounds like a southern name. Cletus, take the wheel, right? From Tim Hawkins. Cephas is just Peter, 
as Peter, the apostle of Jesus, right? One of the top three, Peter, James, and John in the sailboat. You've heard the little nursery rhyme. Peter was like the right hand of Jesus. And so they're like, oh, you think you're a Paul? Paul came late on the scene. And who the heck is Apollos? We're a Peter. And then you finally get those holier-than-thou, super-superior Christians, those people that I can't stand. I love them in Jesus. But they're super-superior Christians. They're like, well, we're of Christ. You may be a Peter, and you may be a Paul, and you might be of Apollos, but I'm of Jesus. I was there when he fed the 5,000. I'm of Jesus. And they take the high ground, and they think they're more spiritual because they're of Jesus. And Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? You were baptized in the name of Paul. And he goes on, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except for so-and-so and this and that and the other because he's a Baptist preacher and he says something and he's like, oh, and I forgot. Wait, I did baptize this guy and this guy, but I didn't baptize the rest of you. Christ is not divided to answer that rhetorical question. Is Christ divided? No! Paul could speak in sarcasm, you know. Some that think sarcasm is of the devil. Caustic sarcasm maybe of the devil, but Paul was, he, he made plays on words. Is Christ divided? Absolutely not. But unfortunately, there are times when churches and families are divided. And division, man, division is such a doctrine of the devil. What a great device. Can I get an amen? Can I get an oh me? And I get an all crap. Um, the Bible says in Psalms how beautiful it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. Now I want to make sure we understand something here as we, we, we just think about this for a second. Unity is not uniformity. Can we agree on that? Do you know what I mean by that? Unity doesn't mean that we're all in Hitler's brown uh, brigade, right? We're not all marching in lockstep. We're not in the military not that kind of unity, not uniformity, right? Unity means we agree in Jesus and we put aside our preferences for the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's unity. Listen, I don't dress like angel. If I, if I, tr- I like the way angel dresses. Me, don't get me I like the way angel dresses. I wish I could pull it off. Sometimes people like, you know, untuck your shirt. Dude, it's just not me. I'm 48 years old. I'll be 49 in like two weeks. You know, there's nothing worse than a 50-year-old trying to dress like a 20-year-old. This doesn't work. They look at him and go, dude, you can dress young, but not that young. I, you know, I, 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 we, we, but we are united, though we're not uniform. We like most of the same music, but there's some music that Angel likes that I, no, no thanks. And we'll probably be singing some of it in this church, and I'll be sitting there going, man, that just does not, I just, ugh. but I'm going to worship God with it, because I don't have to be united in a uniform way. There's music Nate likes, Nate likes NF. I get father of the stinking year last year for taking him to an NF concert for his 12th birthday. NF is like this heavy rapper. He's a Christian dude. Yeah, you too, brother. (laughs) We almost lost him in the mosh pit. So we were like father of the year, and then they let let, uh, Cam and Nate down into the center of the House of Blues. Have you ever been there? And it's like five or 600 people packed like sardines and our 12 year old and 13 year old are like in the middle of this mosh pit with an 18 year old girl from Deerfield who probably never seen a payphone in her life and she's like in the middle and she's supposed to protect them I'm like we were father of the year until we let them through that door and then it was reserved until we found them again and then we were father of the year but he worships with some of this music We are united in that Jesus is glorified, but we are not uniform in how we glorify Him necessarily. We have different 
preferences, but division is an incredible weapon, an incredible strategy that Satan uses not only against churches, but against families. I want you to think about this. Division in families between fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, children and parents, brothers and brothers. There are brothers and sisters, Christians, who have not spoken to each other in years because Satan came in and sowed seeds of division between them. And what a travesty because that diminishes the manifestation of the glory of God. I have seen divisions, wrecked homes, wrecked churches, Division and difference, I want to make an emphasis here that division and differences are not the same thing. Division is destructive. Difference can be constructive. Conflict and confrontation are not evil. How we handle them can be. Confrontation, when I do premarital counseling, this is a very important thing right here. Listen, man, confrontation is not a dirty word. But how you do it can be. Right? You know what I'm talking about? So we got to make sure that we understand this thing of division. Sometimes division is caused by people ignoring differences that need to be addressed. Sometimes division is sown by ignoring conflict that needs to be addressed. Have you ever been with a family and you could just tell? Man, you could cut the tension with a knife, but neither the husband nor the wife, the father or the son was willing to address the conflict. It was the 500-pound gorilla in the room. And they thought they could just go on and pretend it didn't exist. And what happens is the seed of division gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And a root of bitterness grows up. A lot of times I pick on my kids and my wife and I got a little carried away. But I tell you what, man, there, there, there are some times I'm so proud of my son. And uh, because I've raised my son, I want him, when he has a problem with his dad, to tell me. And there was a time when he was a little younger that he wasn't willing to do that. And then there was a time where he, he, he went and just come up to me and this really bothers me, dad. And spoke his heart to me. And Nate, I appreciate that amount of trust. That takes trust. It takes courage to approach someone that basically holds your life in their hands and say, this really bothers me, Dad. This really bothers me, Dad. Folks, wives, husbands, division is a weapon of Satan, and he is bloody brilliant and how he wields it. I want you to understand something. Again, division is not the exclusion of difference, and it isn't uniformity. There are things that people in this church that are ministers in this church under my leadership, they do certain things that I don't really agree with or I would do differently. But I respect them and how God is leading them to do their ministry, whether it's Angel or Stephen or Ron or Rick or Brian. I respect how God has led them to do their ministry. Now, if God is speaking to my heart and saying, yeah, uh, Angel's off base here. You need to correct him. My responsibility is to uh, approach Angel and say, hey, listen, Angel, the way you did this was not in alignment with the vision and strategy of our church. We need to correct this. And then Angel, being Angel, listen, some of you guys don't know Angel. And the ones that are laughing, you think you know what I'm going to say. Angel will with humility respond to my correction. And if he disagrees with me, he will speak up and say, well, I think you're, I think you're out of your mind. And I'll say, well, one of us is. <laughs> and then we'll have a discussion. And if I recognize that I'm wrong, then I'll carry on. If I believe I'm not wrong, well, the Lord put me in this position for a reason. 
An angel recognizes that and says, well, I, bow, I, I submit to your authority that God has given you. Right? That's how you lead, by the way. You don't lead with a sledgehammer or a baseball bat with spikes in it. Right? You lead by building consensus, not forcing it. So anyways, that's for those of you guys that are leaders in this church. Build it. We go on. <clears throat> how, does, how does Satan cause division? What's one of his greatest tools? There's a couple. We're going to look at another one next week. But there's a couple of ways that Satan builds division in his church. James chapter 3, verse number 3. James is the brother of Jesus. I want you to understand, James didn't believe in Jesus as God the Son when he was on earth walking with Jesus. It wasn't until after Jesus was crucified and rose from the grave that James finally got it. Oh, my big brother's God. I always thought he was just a pain in the neck. Always perfect. Did everything right. Right? Now, James became a believer, and this is one of the greatest proofs of the Bible, is a guy that was the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, didn't believe in him until after the resurrection and then became the leader of the church of Jerusalem. This, this was an amazing thing. And so James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts do not boast against the truth then we would check our hearts we could check our hearts this morning though with this wisdom that is envious and self-seeking is not wisdom from above it does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual. What's that last word? What's that last word? What is that last word? What are we studying? Satan. Demons are the disciples of Satan. They are fallen angels. And so here James pulls back the curtain to show us demonic activity. And we like to think that demonic activity is pentagrams on the ground and candles and oculus repair us and leviosa and harry potter and we like to think oh that's that's demonic you want demonic is bitterness envy and self-seeking it's not wisdom so when we're making decisions we're having contentious arguments or we're having differences and we're Digging in, we have to ask a question, from what place am I digging in? Is it from a place of self-seeking? Is it from a place of envy? Is it from a place of bitterness? Because if it is, that wisdom does not descend from above. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing, are there. This is a big deal. We look at them like, ah, selfishness, everybody's selfish. No, everybody is not selfish. Everybody worldly is selfish. Everybody worldly, everybody influenced by Satan is selfish, but not everybody is selfish. My wife was one of the most unselfish people I've ever met. One of the things I love about Trish, and she's not here, she's in Florida helping her parents is that she is so unselfish. I love that about her. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now I'm going to play a sarcastic video for you this morning. I think it might drive home the point, in a church setting, what selfishness might possibly look like. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guys. Right? Come here. Say no more. 
If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we'd sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Me Church, where it's all about you. And we laugh, and it's funny. But it's, uh, it's funny with a point. It's funny with a point. This is, this is a point that a lot of people that are not in leadership don't understand. Why can't we do it this way? Why can't we do it that way? They don't understand that God calls a leader to the church so that there's an avoidance of confusion. And a good leader takes input from the people around him but builds consensus and leads. Realize this. Every single one of you has an opinion. Can I get an amen? Every one of you has an opinion of what kids' ministries we should have, of what music we should listen to, of what music we should worship with, of how a pastor should dress. Everyone has an opinion. Angel has an opinion that I should untuck my shirt. Somebody else has an opinion that I should wear a coat and tie. Somebody else has an opinion that I should have ripped jeans because that's cool. But ultimately, you need to follow the leading that the Lord has placed in the church. And that's why the Bible says, obey them that have the rule over you, as they that must give an account, they, that they may do it with joy and not with sorrow, for they watch over your souls. And, and, and if they do it with sorrow, it's unprofitable for you. And that's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he, said, he talks about knowing them that are over you in the Lord. Understanding that there are ruling elders, because without that rulership, without that leadership in the church, the church is scattered. So, try to understand that when you have a preference that is very important to you, but is not feeling like it's being respected. Because your preference may be the absolute opposite of somebody else's preference. It may be the opposite of mine. I try to lead this way. The Bible says that a pastor must not be, are you ready for it now, self-willed. This is the biblical instruction when choosing a pastor that it's the pastor cannot be self-willed it can't be my way or the highway this is why i'm very careful as i choose leaders that i allow them to lead and that where they lead in a way that i disagree with i check myself and say is that my will or is it god's will are they leading in a way that's opposed to the word of god are they leading in a way that's opposed to where I believe God is leading us? Are they developing a silo in the ministry that's detaching itself from the rest of the church? I have to ask these questions before I come in there and say, you need to make a change. And this is why when you elect your next pastor, you want to make sure that you don't choose a guy that has a reputation of my way or the highway. You don't want to choose a man who is self-willed, but... Listen, if you don't want to choose a man that's self-willed, don't be that man either. Don't cause divisions in the church by being that kind of person. The me church model, Randy, you better get ready. I mean, if we're going to puff and wax and do oil changes, we've got to get you and Jay, right? We've got to get ready for that. That was not happening. Those of you that you're going to Discovery 101, there's no Super Bowl tickets at the end of Discovery 101. So here is a, here is a strategy of Satan to create division, to destroy the glory of God in the church and in the home. In the church and in the home. In the church and in the home. Is self-seeking. What a weapon. Selfishness, self-promotion. It's all about me. It's my way. Listen, I knew a couple many years ago who were passed over for a ministry opportunity. They were in a church and they were passed over for a ministry opportunity. It was something that they were perhaps suited for. It was something that they had trained for. It was something they had been working toward. It was something that they loved. And when it came time to choose a leader for that ministry, they were passed over. And they got so upset. 
But they didn't say anything. They didn't approach the pastor and confront the pastor and say, why did you pass me over? Why did you, why, you know we've been working in this ministry, you know we've been working for this and, and leaning into this and training for this. Why did you pass us over? No, they kept it to themselves. And they became bitter. And they became envious of the one that was placed in that ministry to the point where they had contention against that person and they were able to see all of their flaws. You ever notice that? When you get bitter towards someone, it's so easy to see everything that's wrong with them. Like you become the expert on what's wrong with your husband. You become the expert on what's wrong with your wife. When you become bitter against your husband or against your wife, it takes nothing for you to pick apart every flaw that they have. When you get bitter against your church, it becomes second nature to point out all the flaws that are in your church. And this is such a weapon of Satan in the home and in the church. This couple ended up ultimately more or less being devastated by possibly a bad decision by leadership in that church, but also by their inability or unwillingness to confront the leadership. And how it all ended out, how it all turned out, kind of makes me think that the leadership probably made the right decision. Because if they were unable or unwilling to confront, maybe they were not mature enough to take leadership of that ministry. You follow? Leadership is a burden. Leadership means you have to do things that you don't want to do. Some of you are serving in church and you only come to church when you feel like it. You only serve when you feel like it. You're not serving. If you only serve Jesus when you feel like it, or when it feels good, you're not really serving. You're just doing what you want to. Man, serving Jesus is a sacrifice. It takes dedication. It takes devotion. Sometimes it takes pain. I've had to confront people in and out of this church. And let me tell you, man, it ain't easy. But it's necessary to, 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 to foster unity having confrontation. So instead of confronting the leadership, they buried their, their hurt and planted a seed of bitter envy that ultimately harmed them and harmed others terribly. This is what self-seeking does. Promotion, self-promotion. Self-protection. See, confrontation is not a dirty word. Confrontation is necessary to defeat the weapon of self-centeredness. Somebody's self-centered around you, sometimes you need to confront them. I'm confronting you right now. I'm confronting you right now. Are you causing divisions in your home? Because it's all about you? Are you causing divisions in the church? Because it has to be your way and you're right and you just know it. I've counseled so many couples who couldn't even see each other. They lived in the same home. They couldn't even see each other. They couldn't even hear each other. They'd stopped listening years ago. And they had planted so many seeds of bitterness. The Bible says in Hebrews that bitterness is a root. It's a seed that's planted, and it's a root that digs deep. And then once it's taken root, it shoots up into a massive tree. And the Bible says thereby many are defiled. Bitter envy and self-seeking. They couldn't hear each other because they were so concerned about themselves. I've heard this statement more than I care to admit. And the statement is this. It's an anthem of me. The anthem of me. I should have written a song about it. Because I see it on Facebook and I see it on Instagram and I see it in pithy sayings and I'm looking out for me from now on. I've looked out for everybody else and I'm, it's time for me to take care of me, 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 me. 
And you see it in marriages, and you see it in churches, and you see it, you see it in the children that we raise, that they look out for themselves first. And forget about the family. It's me first, me first. Now don't mistake, don't mistake me when I say this. Uh, I'm not saying ignore your mental health. I'm not saying don't take care of yourself in a healthy way, right? If you're not healthy, you can't take care of others. But we take this healthy thing, and this is what Satan does. He perverts a healthy self-care to an all-about-me attitude and self-protection. I expect to see selfishness and self-centeredness in junior high kids. That is junior high. Moms and dads, you're welcome. Now you know. You were wondering, why is my kid only concerned about himself or self? That's not all junior high kids, but that's an age where the child begins to be concerned about themselves and how they're perceived and everybody's looking at me and I got to have the right this and I got to have the right that and I got to do the right thing. And, and hopefully by the time they get toward 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, they lose that self-centeredness and begin to care more about others. They begin to care more about others. You say, I'm supposed to care more about others? Well, I don't know. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about this? Oh, here's one. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Is that Bible? Did the Bible say that? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 24. We should be more concerned about each other than we are even about ourselves. I don't need accolades. I don't need the praise. There's a couple that I know, and I love this couple, and... and um, a husband is an avid football fan. And I use this in my premarital counseling all the time. He's, he's such a football fan. He has a shrine. I mean, I kind of argue a little bit whether he's made a god out of his football team, but he has a shrine to his football team. And his wife knows that he loves this team so much that he, it's not a New England team. So when it's televised, it's a big deal for him that he gets to watch the game. And so his wife, she, she'll get his, his blanket that has their logo on it. And she'll get his mug that has his logo, their logo on it. And she makes sure the TV's on. And he sits down to watch the game. And she loves him so much. She makes sure that everything is all set. There's no distractions when this particular team is playing. But this is something important that he said. He says this, but here's the deal. So when my wife says, honey, we need to go to Billy Bob's this Sunday afternoon. And my team is playing. And she knows I have a shrine to my team. Like, this team is everything. I mean, I live and die on this team's success. And my wife approaches me and says, Honey, we need to go over Billy Bob's house. I don't even question whether it's important. Why? Because I know she loves me so much. She would never do anything to harm me. Right? So I don't even question. I just go. I just go because she has convinced me of how much she cares for me, that when she asks me to do something that takes me away from my favorite thing, it doesn't make a difference. I leave it because I also love her so much that I'm willing to leave this to go over here to do what she says I need to do. Folks, we need to have that kind of love for each other in our families but also in our churches, and our families, but also in our churches. I, I talk to couples all the time. Obviously, as a pastor, you do marriage counseling. And, and so far, it'll be 29 years in August of this year. It'll be 29 years. And um, I don't remember the last time Trish and I got into a fight. Like a fight fight. You know what I'm saying? Like we've had disagreements. We might disagree about vacation. We might disagree about how to deal with our kids. And we'll have some disagreements, but when we have something that's bothering us, generally speaking, we will confront one another before it turns into Mount Vesuvius in our relationship. Before this molehill turns into Mount Everest. 
We'll have a, a, a confrontation or a conflict, but even better than that, typically speaking, if one of us is more passionate about something than the other, we just do that. I'm not concerned about getting my way. I'm not concerned that she acts exactly how a pastor's wife is supposed to act. I'm not concerned about it. It doesn't matter to me. And she's not concerned about it either. We just love each other and put each other first. What does it say? I'm more concerned about her well-being than I am about mine. And some of you are saying, well, I wish my husband was that way. And just by saying that, you give yourself away. Whom you're thinking about right now reveals to you whether you are self-centered or not. If you're thinking about all the people in your life that need to hear this message, guess who needs to hear it? You do. Amen, Pastor. Preach it. Keep it going. Take us till six. You follow? Satan wants to destroy your family. Your husband, your wife, they are not your enemy. Your children are not your enemies. Satan is. And if there is division in your home, he is the root cause of it. And a lot of times, the strategy that he's using, the weapon that he's using, is self-centeredness, selfishness, self-promotion, and envy. This is what he's using. Self-seeking. My way or the highway. You know, Jesus said, if you, <laughs> in so much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. When you give a glass of water in the name of Jesus, you've given it to him. We need to start learning this, this idea that when we, when we love each other and we serve each other and we put our preferences aside, we're serving Jesus. Look what it says in Philippians. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. Doesn't that go against almost every rap song that is a secular rap song that you know of? Like every rap song I've ever heard, it's like, I'm the best, I'm the greatest, women are B. I mean, it's, they're just horrible. You get Christian rap, and it's Jesus is the best. Jesus is the greatest, right? That's the difference. So here we see another verse teaching us something, that we need to love each other more than we love ourselves, or at least as much as we love ourselves. The Bible says love your neighbors as you love yourself. And so is self-love important? Absolutely. If you hate yourself, how can you love someone well? Again, mental health is important. Self-care is important. But if it becomes your God, it's no longer self-care, it becomes selfishness. So here we see another example. This is the antidote, by the way. The antidote of selfish ambition is selfless ambition. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, I don't think I've ever asked to be anything in this church except I joined the choir by asking. Trish was in the choir, we were 16, and I'm like, well, why did they ask you to be in the choir and not me? It might have been because I couldn't sing. So, uh, so I'm like, I went and asked. And I think, that, listen, there's nothing wrong with asking. We've been asking for help in pretty much every ministry in this church. So if you, ask, if you are asking to join a ministry, you've already been asked. Okay? Um, I didn't ask to be the youth pastor in this church. I didn't want to be the youth pastor, but I didn't ask for it. I didn't ask to be the pastor. I didn't ask to be the worship leader. Folks, we, we, we get so jealous of people that are placed in positions of leadership and influence because we feel like we should be there. Well, maybe we shouldn't be there. Maybe we should be supporting the ones that are there. And maybe if we support the ones that are there with a spirit of humility, a willingness to get a glass of water or bring a cup of coffee or grab a vacuum, maybe we would be observed as someone who has a servant's heart and we would be brought up into a position of leadership. And from there, we would be good leaders. Why? Because good leaders were great followers first. 
And good leaders were self-sacrificers first before they were a leader. Look out for each other. Wives, love your husbands at least as much as you love yourself. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Church, love and care for each other. Defeat the enemy that says it's my way, it's my way, it's my way. And finally, in closing, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This idea of selfishness and self-centeredness, it's nothing new. But sometimes it is difficult to see, isn't it? We need to be alert. We need to have an alertness when we're dealing with Satan. We need to understand that sometimes the voices in our head are not our voices at all. That sometimes when we're seeing everything that's wrong, it's not being pointed out to us by us. It's being pointed out to us by someone else who has nefarious ends. He wants to destroy your church. He wants to destroy your family. So we need to be alert to the voices that we're hearing. We need to be alert. Listen, I mentioned it as we began this message. We need to be alert to the place from which we are confronting others. From the place of stubbornness. You read that with me, an unwillingness to yield. As a pastor, I have to check myself constantly. If I'm disagreeing with someone, I, I come at it with this statement. Am I being stubborn in a bad way? Am I being self-centered? Am I being self-willed? I ask myself these questions, and so should you. Some of you think you're biblically correct all the time, and I'm here to tell you, you're not. You're just not. I'm not biblically correct all the time. You know why? Because I'm flesh and blood. This is why I talk to my leaders, Ron and Rick and Stephen and Angel, John, and all the others that I didn't mention. There are times when I'm saying, am I all wet on this? Is this wrong? Is it, what do you guys see? Well, this is what we see. Folks, we need to be willing to yield. We need to be alert from the place with which we, from which we argue. What is the foundation? Where is it coming from? And be alert of selfishness in our hearts. Have you stopped ministering to people in your church? Have you stopped ministering to your wife? Have you stopped ministering to your husband? I think this message is so vitally important. I've said it before. I think that if most marriages would be healed 80%, if the husband and wife would learn to minister to, some, to, to each other as if they were a stranger. You have more patience with strangers than you do with your spouse. You're willing to go out of your way for strangers, and if you're thinking about your wife saying, yeah, she is, you're, you're, the message is to you. This is something that as a minister I had to get because as a pastor, it's a... It's, it's, it's a lot easier for me to go out of my way for you than it is for me to go out of my way for her and for him. It's easier for me to put aside things to make a hospital visit than it is to put aside things to go watch my kid play. Well, football is different. Field hockey. <laughs> and as a pastor and as, a, as my young leaders that come up in the church and older leaders, I warn them. Your family is a member of your church too. And if you would drop everything to go see a church member's kid play a lacrosse game, you should be willing to drop everything to go see your kid play a basketball game. And sometimes that puts things in perspective. It puts things in a proper perspective for a pastor or a minister who's caught up and everything has to be for the church. So folks, be alert. One last thing. I determined that I would not preach on Satan to the exclusion of the glory of God. In Hebrews 12, we talk about being alert. We talk about being aware. We talk about being watchful. And the Bible says this, Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God.
Man, if we would learn to fall, I was praying this morning, if we would just learn to fall in love with Jesus, if we would learn to put Jesus first in our lives, if we would learn to make it all about Jesus, we would be defeated so less frequently. If we would make much of Jesus in our relationships, if we would understand that we are the gospel of Jesus to our spouse, to our kids, if we would understand that we are ministers to each other in this church, if we would look to Jesus, man, we would probably be blinded to so many other things. And I mean in a good way. Now some of you are sitting here this morning and you're, you're basically unarmed. You have no defense against Satan because you've never come to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. You don't understand what him enduring the cross means. Like, I met someone that they had no idea who Jesus was. I mean, they knew he was like the Son of God, but they didn't understand that he was perfect and that he was holy and without sin and that when he went to the cross, he, the sinless one, the Bible says, became sin for us, he that knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's an amazing thing. We sang, Lord, I need you just a few moments ago. And, and he said that, the holy, that Jesus Christ is the holiness of God in me. Christian, living in shame and guilt. Did you catch that? The holiness of God is Christ in you. That's the holiness of God. Come to him broken with your sin. Come to him and confess your sin. And allow the holiness and righteousness of God to wash over you. For you are no longer under condemnation. Hey all, thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to know more, please go to our website, emmanuelhooksit.com, where you'll find helpful links and resources, and where you can contact us directly. That web address again is emmanuelhooksit.com. Bless God, get out there, and be the blessing. Thank you.